0: Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I am Aaron Stump, and we are in Chapter 3 of the Iowa Type Theory Commute. Wait, are we? (laughs) Actually, we have strayed into some other chapter, because the past few times I've been talking about dependent types, which certainly fit nicely with the curry Hard isomorphism, which is what Chapter 3 of the Iowa Type Theory Commute is about. But they are arguably, uh, you know, deserve their own chapter. And so I have uh, wandered off the path a little bit here because I have no plan. I just talk as I go. and But the plan sort of is coming to me a little bit here. And the <laughs> I realized that let's save dependent types and talk more about that because there's quite a lot we can say about that. In fact, that's worth a couple of chapters of this. Uh, so for now, though, let's come back to the proper topic at hand, which is the Curry-Howard isomorphism. And there are a couple more things I would like to share about the curry Hard isomorphism. We talked about sort of some of the basics, the idea that constructive proofs and programs can be identified, pure functional programs, that is, and that formulas in various kinds of, various forms of logic can be identified with types in various forms of fancy or mundane typed, statically typed programming languages. So for example, implication, the if-then formula on the logical side corresponds to the function type on the programming side. So a proof that P implies Q under the curry hard isomorphism can be viewed as a pure functional program of type P arrow Q. You could think of it as something that takes in proofs of P and gives you back proofs of q. I mean, that's sort of a hybrid between the logical and the programming viewpoint, isn't it? Because, you know, if you really were just on the programming side, you'd say it's just a function that takes in values of type P and returns values of type Q. Okay, so anyway, we've been talking about the Curry-Hard isomorphism, and before I straight off a little bit into dependent types, which are certainly closely related, but I want to come back because it's an amazing thing that this Curry-Hard isomorphism, which as I said, there's you know tons more one could learn and study about this, but an important and interesting fact is that it applies, and this is an amazing discovery of Timothy Griffin. It applies not just to, to constructive logic, but it also applies to classical logic. Son of a gun, how could that make any sense? I want to give you some intuition for that in this episode. And this is really an amazing paper, and I think one of the, you know, a landmark result in this sort of area. And this is a Popple Principles of Programming Languages, that's an ACM Association of Computing Machinery Conference, Popple 1990. Popple 1990 had two of the most incredible papers ever in my catalog, and this is one of them. And I will tell you what the other one is some other time. Uh, so this paper, I don't remember the title, I'm really sorry, but the author is Timothy Griffin. It's a formula as formulas, types correspondence for control, or something like this. I'm I'm embarrassed. I should know the title. Anyway, um, in this remarkable paper, Timothy Griffin f- described how the career high isomorphism works for classical logic. And it's just mind-blowing. And I want to tell you, I want to give you, the, as I said, the intuition by thinking about, okay, so we know, we've talked about, sort of the locus of non-constructivity can be pinned down as the law of excluded middle, which says P or not P. Again, um, in many dimensions of reality, totally non-controversial. Things are either true or false. P or not P. What, what, what do you got your knickers in a twist about? Well, you know there are other you know areas where it's not so clear cut, and definitely if we're giving an algorithmic interpretation of things, the ability to produce a proof of P or not P given any P, any formula P you want, that ability—if you're requiring to, this to be an algorithmic, where it's sort of you tell me P and then I'll tell you whether P is true or false—whoa, that's like that's an oracle. That's very powerful that in fact that's provably impossible to create in general for any p and a sufficiently interesting logical language so because you can't though, what that amounts to is a decision procedure that's the term that's sometimes used for a program that can tell you whether formulas are true or false in various logics but this is just saying oh yeah i'll give you a decision procedure for any logic you want which is totally impossible even first-order logic, uh, just by itself, doesn't have a decision procedure. Which, when I was learning about theorem proving, it's like, wow, first-order logic—that's that's so much be- so far beyond propositional logic, or or even SMT satisfiability modulo theories, uh, which we have a lot of here at Iowa. But um, also, uh, that's also grown its way towards first-order logic and even beyond. But uh, you know, first-order logic is still actually pretty weak <laughs> compared to Say you know first order theories of, or first order theory of arithmetic, or some higher order theory of arithmetic, uh, and and stronger theories than that. So anyway, but um, but still it's undecidable. So you can't write a program that takes in a a formula of first order logic and tells you yes that's a valid formula or no sorry it is not a valid formula. That's impossible. You can prove it's impossible, and so. An algorithmic interpretation of the law of excluded middle just there is no that doesn't work, but there is a different sort of uh, computational spin on it, and and here's how it goes, okay? And this can be this can be explained in many interesting ways. Um, There's a really funny way to explain it as a sort of story about uh, the devil interacting with. Somebody and promising him wishes and this kind of thing. And if you look online, just look for something like Philip Wadler devil story or something like that. I hope you don't get anything too weird. But anyhow, um, I could tell the story too. I used to really like to tell it, but now I'm going to just tell this in what I think is a simpler to understand way. That's not as narrative, how's, what's the word? Narratively exciting, but I think is clear. So suppose you say, okay, I would like to know P or not P, please tell me. And I just say, you know what? It's not P. Not P, okay? Now, this is the funny thing. And it's, I think this is really thought-provoking, this whole discussion about constructivity and law of excluded middle. If you say, what can I do with negative information? Okay? If I say, oh, something's not true. Uh, you know, what, what do I, how do I act on that? Now, in real life, of course, we act on negative information all the time. Uh, And I I guess I haven't reflected too much about exactly why that makes perfect sense, where in a sort of logical setup, it doesn't make as clear of a sense. It might be that when we act on negative information, it may be that what we're really acting on is um, ruling out some possibility or something, and then thus knowing that the other possibilities are true. Uh, I think that, that seems pretty plausible. When I say, you know the If we were back in football season, um, we might say, oh, you know, there's the Hawkeyes don't have a home game this weekend. Yeah. Well, that tells me, okay, so that's negative information, but it does tell me something positive. It tells me either they have a bye week or they're playing away. Okay? So I actually learned some positive facts from this. But from just a straight up negative fact that, in so what what happens is if I tell you, okay, it's not P. In other words, P is false. You don't really have any way deductively to do anything with an assumption of not p, unless you're going to use it to derive a contradiction from a fa- from a proof of p or an assumption of p or something like that. Okay, so I tell you, p is false, and you just sort of sit on this information like, okay, that's great. What do I do with that? Well, if I if you had some reason to think that p were true, well, now you can put together my statement that P is false and your proof that P is true and get a contradiction. And that's where the computational interpretation of law of excluded middle does something very funny. And this is, again, in this Griffin paper, there the connection is made between um, a curry Howard isomorphism, between classical logic and control operators, what they call control operators. Control operators are things that allow you to manipulate the control state of your program in some way. An exception would be a sort of simple case of a control operator. Uh, Much fancier cases are things like call CC, if you've ever heard of that. Call with current continuation. This is kind of big in the Scheme, Lisp sort of world. Scheme world, I guess. This was introduced in Scheme, I believe, uh, in the 1980s or something. And I think you can find it in ML languages as well. So ML dialects. But anyhow, so what the what the law of excluded middle is going to do is say, Okay, I told you not P I told you P is false. I gave you a proof of not P. And if you later come along and say, Oh cool, that's awesome. I can explode the universe because I have a proof of P, the control operator aspects of this computation say, no, we're going to go back in time. Hey, did I tell you P was false back then? Whoa, whoa, scratch that, scratch that. P is true, and here's the proof. Because, you see, when you took when the law of excluded middle is not P proof, it's kind of like you took the bait, so to speak. <laughs> you said, law of excluded middle told you, yeah, not P is true. And you said, oh, okay, And I'm, I've got a proof of P. I'm going to put these things together. I get a contradiction. I can prove anything I want from that, or maybe I terminate some case I was in or something. And the control aspect rolls back the computation and says, go back in time, go back in time, forget it. It wasn't not P, it was P. And the reason I could tell you it was P is because now the law of says, ha ha, now I've got a proof of P because you gave me one. When you combine it with my the proof of the sort of bait not P proof I gave you. Okay. Um, I'm telling this in a very kind of. Um, You know, combative way or something. I don't know, Um, but uh, that's that's how Curry Howard works. That's a very basic intuition for how Curry Howard works for classical logic, and this whole you know. So you say, "Wow, that's amazing!" Can I write programs that case split on undecidable things? Like, can I split write a program that says, "Well, if this Turing machine halts, do this. If it doesn't halt, do that," and I have a little more to say about that, but I've reached my destination, so maybe I'll speak about that the next time. Okay, thank you very much for listening.